Let me invite you now to grab a Bible and open it to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we'll get to that in just a minute. All right, you follow as I read from um, a portion of God's Word. Gang, this is what you call an historical narrative. It's a story. It's an event out of the life of David. You remember the one that slew Goliath? This is a, he's king, and this is one of the things that happened in his life. And I'm going to begin reading. We've already spent one week on this passage. This is number two. I'll begin at verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtake you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces, and David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. So David wanted a census, and a census he got. He got it after insisting on his own way, ignoring counsel and and pushing this idea through like a brute beast the um the census took about 10 months or a year or so and all the while david is is back in jerusalem thinking boy i am one big shot i mean i'm the king of this big old nation with all these people in this mighty army Uh, apparently during that 10 month year period David's, David's conscience was uh, slumbering or inoperable or whatever, but he never, never saw what he had done as sin, at least at this moment. But God is in no hurry. Perhaps you've heard of the statement somebody made about the wheels of God's judgment grind uh, very slowly but they grind exceedingly fine. And here they come. That is, 
here come the wheels of God's judgment. As a result of David's sin, 70,000 people die. And I'm not sure whether that includes women. If it doesn't, then more than 70,000 die. But you're just told 70,000 men. And one of the one of the small lessons that I think we all need to learn from this story, which I think we already know, is that our sin doesn't just affect us, it affects people around us. 70,000 people suffered because of David's sin. David took pride in his thousands, and so his thousands must be reduced. But once David feels the weight of what he had done, that is that 70,000 people died, now, but only now, he and the elders fall on their faces before God. Had he been there all along, perhaps this would have never happened at all. But only pain brings David to his senses. Is that not so true of us, ladies and gentlemen? We love our sins so much that it's only pain that will prompt us to let go of it. Apart from this intervention on the part of God, David could have conceivably stayed in this for years. It could have gone longer and he could have grown harder. Because you see, sin is not as big a deal to us as it is to God. In fact, we have people look at what David did and they say, well, you know, that's just what leaders do. I mean, those type A personalities, (laughs) they just do stupid stuff like this. But God's perspective on sin is different than ours. There's so much more to this than perhaps meets the eye. And I want to show you some of it. Guys, perhaps an issue or perhaps even the issue in this whole event in 1 Chronicles 21 is... um, It has to do with an earlier Mosaic statute that David ignored. And if you've got a a Bible at your disposal, and I hope you do, I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 30, and I want to read you a paragraph. Because, as I said, there's more to this, and I want to show you some of it. This is in Exodus chapter 30, beginning at verse 17. I'll only read a paragraph. It reads like this, chapter 30, verse 11, excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, The shekel is 20 garaz, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it For the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The census tax, ladies and gentlemen, 
But um, because David now assumed a certain ownership over Israel, a certain possession, that is, these are my people and my kingdom and, and my army. This mosaic statue never crossed his mind. Um, these are my people. Whereas this makes clear that when a census was taken, a reminder was to be, um, uh, something was to be used to remind the people that they didn't belong to the king. They were God's redeemed people. And um, <clears throat> so they were never to be numbered without a specified ransom for each life. But again, that never crossed David's mind. Guys, did you see in this paragraph the language of ransom? Did you see the mention of the word atonement? Um, the language that's here is that it communicates that if somebody paid a ransom, somebody was responsible for setting me free. But the one who set me free was not David. And so to remind the people of their having been set free, there was a census tax, folks. You see, because Israel was to never forget that she had been set free not by David, but by God. Israel didn't belong to David. She belonged as a redeemed people to God. And Israel was not to rely upon David and the size of their army for their protection and their prosperity. No. They were supposed to be a people who were reliant upon God. And so every person was to give a half of a shekel for the service of the temple or the tabernacle. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, did you know that this tax appears in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 17, you remember that story? Peter comes to Jesus and says, do we pay the temple tax? And to, Jesus says, I tell you what you do. You go down into the Sea of Galilee, you catch a fish, you open its mouth, there's going to be a shekel in there, and you go and give that to the people for you and me. That temple tax was still going on in the New Testament. David couldn't claim that he had forgotten it because there it was. Still in operation in the New Testament. But you see, <clears throat> once you start thinking of yourself as a hot shot, then all of a sudden you start forgetting clear statutes that God has put in place. When you have a census, without the census tax, then you start thinking, whoa, whoa, aren't we strong? 
Aren't we something? Aren't we mighty? Why, you could even begin to trust in human might and human device. So it wasn't just about pride in numbers. It was about a pride in numbers that makes him play fast and loose with clear commands. Guys, in reality, what you find in this incident in 1 Chronicles 21 is David trusting in men, not God. And when you do that, you will evoke a plague. Because once you dispense or discard with dependence upon God, then we begin to trust in our collective selves, our collective might. And I'm telling you guys, if you will watch television for any period of time, all the commercials are saying a similar, they're giving a similar message. If we, we can do anything if we only unite the culture has gone mad because of its reliance upon human device and so the plague arrives a drawn sword and 70,000 people die. <laughs> Any of that sound familiar? Well, how about this? The very thing that David thought would bring him such pleasure causes him such immense pain. You know, folks, I've been in the pastoral ministry for 45 years now. And I watch as men and women trek off into some kind of extramarital affair. And they think, this is really going to do it. This is going to add a vigor and a vitality to my life. And then the plague comes. The very thing that we thought was going to bring us such pleasure brings us such pain. Is that not a lesson, folks, that needs to be kept in the forefront of our minds? Watch the sequence. I taste a little bit of prosperity. I get very high-minded because of the prosperity. I ignore clear commands of God. I choose to do something that violates a biblical statute. 
and the plague comes. <laughs> this event brought on by David's pride, which leads him to ignore clear commands, turns into a nightmare. The same kind of nightmare that Nebuchadnezzar experienced once he had strutted around his city thinking he was a big shot. And you know that that's in Daniel chapter 4. And that closes with these words. And the Lord is able to humble those who walk in pride. <laughs> Boy, is he. But it was also an occasion for a restoration of humility in David. If you'll notice as the story proceeds, David does not attempt to shift the blame. You know, that Satan made me do it. Which, by the way, is an essential element in repentance. We own the, the, the issue, not try to find some scapegoat. Um, David, in essence, takes sides with God against himself. He condemns himself. He sees his deed in the light of, of God's holiness. And at that point, Gad, the prophet, he enters. He brings a word from God. And even that, ladies and gentlemen, is a kindness. That God would continue to speak to a man who is so steeped in his own pride. So David's response here <clears throat> is brought on by a message from God through the prophet Gad. But ladies and gentlemen, David had already experienced that once. You remember back with Bathsheba? It was another prophet. His name was Nathan. You would think that after that, David would have learned his lessons. But he didn't. So here comes prophet number two. And Gad offers him this very unique and odd way of God wanting to deal with David. He offers him a choice between three years or three months or three days. David, um, David would be restored. He would be forgiven. But that would not exempt him from the consequences of his sin. Folks, none of us, none of us get away with our sin. There are always consequences to the sin. Restoration, forgiveness, yes. But there are always consequences to sin. These consequences are not penal. They're disciplinary. Because you see, we're told in the book of Proverbs, we're told in the book of Hebrews, that God chastens those he loves. He does. Because he will not let us waste our lives pursuing disobedience. David's response 
outline in verse 13, it, it is really, there's a good deal of richness to his response. David's choice of the three options that he's given is buoyed by his understanding of God's grace. If I must suffer, let me suffer at the hands of God. And at this point, David has recovered his sanity. And he begins to display some of the faith faith that you would expect in him. I want to be in God's hands even as he deals with me over my sin. The safest place for me to be is under God's chastising rod. Because it is always a rod that is wielded by a God of mercy. My only hope for a proper and conclusive remedy for my sin will be found with God. If anybody can take care of my sin... got to be God and then this part of the story concludes in verse 17 with really a misfire on the part of David because um, he acknowledges that he deserves to die he has no quarrel with God's justice which this whole episode clearly displays the, um, the consequences of his sin is that I should die. David feels the horror of it, that drawn sword the, over the guilt of his own sin. And you'll notice that he doesn't supplicate the angel of the Lord or Mary or anybody else. He says to God, smite me. The people didn't choose this. I did. So, let them go. Spare the flock and take my life. And in that, you see that David understands at least a little of something. He knows that the many will be set free by the death of one, or that's what he's offering. And to that offer, God says, No. And God says no for a couple of reasons. First of all, he would not have any of us think that the basis on which he will forgive us is our own repentance and our hatred of our sin. Oh, there will be a hatred of sin, but that's not the basis upon which he forgives us. David, I will do what you have suggested. I am going to strike the shepherd, David. But that will be later. And it won't be with you. David was not qualified to be a substitute for the people of Israel. David, the flock is going to be set free when I strike the shepherd. But you're not the shepherd. You may have thought you were. But you're not qualified, David, to be the shepherd. 
Oh, there is a shepherd that I will strike, but it's not you. It is my only begotten and beloved son. Because you see, David, you are disqualified from being their substitute because of your sin. But my son, he has no sin. And I will strike that shepherd. And the flock will be set free. Now, guys, in this story, you must not confuse the consequences of David's sin with the payment for David's sin. This 70,000 deaths did not pay for David's sin. They are the consequences of David's sin. But there is one death that will pay for David's sin. Jesus is. Jesus pays for the sin of David. He pays for my sin. And how about yours? Jesus pays for the sin of any man, woman, who placed their full trust in him and his finished work. Either Jesus will pay for my sin, or I will taste the consequences of my sin for the rest of eternity. David, I will smite the shepherd later. And I am here to tell you that he did smite the shepherd so he could set free the flock. Our Father, would you make that very clear to every listener? Might they see that the only remedy for sin is not to be found in some kind of uh, human offering, but the remedy is to be found in Christ and Him only. That you have seen fit to provide the adequate substitute for our sin, and that we as, as a guilty people who deserve the drawn sword are going to escape that judgment because Jesus Christ took it for us. Might he in all of his loveliness be the, thing, the, per, the one for whom we live, whether our days be many or few, might he receive what he deserves, a complete and full dependence 
upon what he has accomplished for us at the cross. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet embraced the Savior, show them, show them very clearly that either Jesus pays for it or the consequences will be eternal. Might um, you draw people to a saving knowledge of that Savior even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.